So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be starting at verse 17. It says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you have houses to eat? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was, was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the, of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, have you ever had somebody throw a party for you? Uh, I have a wonderful wife, and my wife planned a party for me uh, for my 30th birthday. It was a surprise party, and uh, she went to great lengths to make sure it was a surprise. And it just so happened that my dog got sick while I was at the church here and threw up. And she told me, we were supposed to go to a movie, and she said, well, you should probably, we should probably stop at the church and make sure we clean up that mess with a steam cleaner uh, before we go to the movie. So I thought we're going to a movie, and I mean, it was really weird because my dog, you know, doesn't get sick often. And so I go there to clean it up, and uh, she was up in the, she went up to, near the lounge, and uh, she said, could you come up here and help me see if you can find a vacuum cleaner? And so I go up there, and then I open the door, and there's all these people in there. And then the first thought that went through my mind was, oh shoot, I forgot there's an event at the church today didn't realize it was a party for me. So finally I realized that when people yelled surprise and uh, I went in and my wife had taken a lot of thought and care in everything that was part of this party. Uh, She got all my favorite things. She got like my pizza from my favorite uh, pizza place. Uh, She got my favorite kind of cake. She had this my favorite kind of drink that she ordered online from this special place. Uh, my friends from, North, or from, from New York City, they haven't seen in a long time. She invited them, and they were there. And so it was just perfect. It was awesome. And I remember leaving, it's like, that's my kind of party. I mean, it reflected me, and it was so thoughtful. But sometimes parties don't work out like that. Sometimes, you know, maybe you're planning a party for someone. Specifically, it happens a lot with kids, where you're planning a party for, some, for a child, and you think they're going to like and then it turns out they either don't like it, they're not interested in it, or they really dislike it. So I found a number of stories online of of parents who had that problem. Uh, There was one lady named Brett, and she had a six-year-old daughter. 
And usually she would prepare, uh, she would order like these really cool cakes for the birthday parties. And for whatever reason, that particular year, her plans fell through. So she decided she was going to have like a character, somebody dressed up to come to the party. So she found this creature called Mrs. Bigfoot, also known as Cinnamon. And so she hired this uh, Bigfoot creature to come to the party and he's carrying balloons, or she's carrying balloons, and presents, and she comes and peeks through the window at the kids in the party, and they were terrified. They ran for the hills. They said even the family dog was terrified of this creature. Wasn't the uh, effect she was looking for. Another person said this, we had my daughter's first birthday party today, and overall it went pretty well until her smash cake. Evidently, she must be allergic to some of the dye that the bakery uses to create the icing color because she almost instantly broke out in hives. Thankfully, the reaction wasn't any more serious than that, but you better believe a thorough bath and some Benadryl were involved. Another parent wrote, we hired a clown for my son's birthday party, only he upset half the kids who cried and hid. We had to nicely ask the poor clown to leave. Another parent writes, when our daughter was eight, she wanted a surprise party, so we planned one for her. But when she walked in, she burst into tears and said surprise parties made her heart hurt. Finally, a parent said, I had a sleepover birthday party for my five-year-old daughter. Only at about 11 p.m., the kids started crying, not just one or two of them, but all of them. And I ended up calling all the parents, and every girl was gone by midnight. So you had all these kids that came to the party that their parents had planned for them, and they realized, this is not my kind of party. I don't like this. It's not what I enjoy. And uh, today we're looking at the Lord's Supper, and Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. Now, I grew up in the church, and uh, when I was growing up, we always referred to it as communion rather than the Lord's Supper. And uh, so I never really thought about the term the Lord's Supper. But it would have been probably more common in the ancient world, and they would have been more familiar with the concept. Last week or the week before, we talked about how uh, oftentimes in the Corinthian temples, uh, people would kind of throw parties in honor of the gods or throw dinner parties in honor of the gods. And then I, I think that's kind of similar to what's happening in the Lord's Supper. The idea of the Lord's Supper is it's kind of a supper or dinner that's thrown in honor of the Lord. It's in remembrance and in honor of the Lord. And yet, Paul says in this passage that the dinner that they're throwing for Jesus is not Jesus' kind of party. Look at what it says in verse 20. It says, when you gather together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They called it the Lord's Supper, but it wasn't a meal that was honoring to him. It wasn't a meal that was reflective of the gospel. And so today we're going to kind of hone in on the idea of the Lord's Supper and how to take that in, in, in a worthy manner, as, it, as Paul says in this passage. Uh, but a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today, a lot of the ways that the Corinthians falter in regards to the Lord's Supper, are not necessarily completely applicable to us in the way that we take the Lord's Supper. But I think there is a broader application. So, you know, when they came together and we come together and take the Lord's Supper, it's this, this meal in honor of the Lord. 
But when we come together as the church at 316 Thompson Street and when other churches gather together, it's kind of like this, there's this hour or an hour and a half or whatever it is that's dedicated to the Lord. It's in honor of the Lord. And so I think these principles that apply to the supper that's honoring to the Lord can also apply to this time that we give to the Lord. And the same way that they faltered in regards to the Lord's Supper, I think that we can falter in regards to how we view the church. And, and there's three things, uh, three ways that the Corinthians falter in regards to the Lord's Supper. The first way that they falter is their spiritual practices led to division rather than to unity. In verse uh, 18, Paul talks about there being divisions among the people. Uh, and in verse 21, he says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So most likely what is happening here is that this church and people are coming together, probably in somebody's house, and the rich are gathering together in their kind of group, and then the poor are gathered together in their group. Maybe the rich were gathered inside the home, the poor maybe in the courtyard. And so they're separated into these two groups based upon their socioeconomic class. And so what Paul says here is this is a problem because this is not in line with the gospel. Jesus came to the earth, he died on the cross, he rose again, and he rose again to create one people, one church, one family, not two. Those distinctions that used to matter or matter from a worldly standpoint like race, socioeconomic status, intelligence, none of those things matter anymore in Christ. Christ came to create one people out of many. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul puts it this way, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, again, when it comes to the practice of the Lord's Supper, this doesn't necessarily apply to us. You know, when we take communion together, we all take of it together. It's not like there's one group over here and one group over there. We all partake of it together. But when it comes to spiritual practices creating division, I think that's a, uh, something that can apply to any church, to many churches. I think we all have this tendency to kind of devolve into division and actions. It could be small issues of theology. You know, churches have kind of formed different groups uh, based on how you view, view the end times, whether you're post-millennialists or pre-millennialists or amillennialists, or when you think the Lord's going to come back, or whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, or all these various issues that are secondary issues that churches kind of hive off into different groups and separate themselves from one another, thinking that they're being spiritual, thinking that they're honoring the Lord and being faithful to His Word. It can happen with socioeconomic class as well. Just like in, in uh, the church in Corinth, they were separated between the rich and the poor. The rich and the poor can separate. People who are wealthy can kind of gather into their own groups and kind of look down on the poor and say, you know, maybe thinking that they're lazy or they have no initiative. They don't have any drive. The poor, on the other hand, they can gather in their own groups and kind of look down upon the rich and consider them to be pretentious and self-absorbed. Factions can form, sadly, because of race. Years ago, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the most segregated hour in, the na in this nation is Sunday at 11 a.m. And sadly, in many contexts, that continues. As people go into their own racial comfort zones. 
churches can form, bap, form uh, factions over the ways that they do church. People who are Baptists can say, well, we're really focused on God's Word, and we're more focused on God's Word than those charismatics down the street. And the charismatics can say, well, those Baptists, they, they stand there and worship, and it's like you're lucky if anybody raises their hands, and we have enthusiasm. We really, really love the Lord, and so we're, we jump up and down, and we care about worshiping the Lord. Then you have the Presbyterians, and like, well, neither the Baptists nor the Charismatics have any church tradition. They're not rooted. They're not grounded. And so when we come together as the body of Christ, there's a tendency we can compare ourselves to someone else. And that's not of God. We're all one in Christ. Sadly, factions can form over silly little things, the silliest things. Uh, we're hoping to at some point get some chairs for the sanctuary. And we had three chairs in the back. And, uh, you know, if you didn't check those out, check those out. Ron will, we just want to see, you know, which one is most comfortable to people. And, and, you know, there are, you know, I fully don't expect it to happen here, but there have been churches where people will, like, leave the church over things like that or separate. It's like, oh, I like chair one. I like chair two. I don't like the color of this. I like the color of that. And if you choose this color, you know, you're going to turn everybody off and no one's going to come and, and it's, you're, you're, you're really sinning. You know, and people get, it's crazy to think about, but things like that happen in the body of Christ over color of carpet. And so if our spiritual practices are leading us to a place of conflict and division rather than unity, it's not Jesus' party. And that's what's happening here in this passage. They're coming together for the supper that's in honor of the Lord, supposed to be in honor of the Lord, and it's creating divisions. They're going to their own ways. And so Jesus is, or Paul says, Jesus would not be honored by this. This isn't his party. This isn't his supper if it's causing these two groups to separate. Our spiritual practices, if there's anything that we're doing as a corporate body of Christ meeting together that creates factions, divisions, then we're not being honoring to Christ. It's not Jesus' party. So that's the first thing. Their spiritual practices were leading to uh, divisions rather than to unity. This event that was supposed to unite the family of faith, the Lord's Supper, was instead separating them. The second thing we see, the way that they falter, was they were focused on their own needs rather than the needs of others. In verse 21, it says, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. So again, the people come together, and they're in their own little groups. The rich and the poor are separated and the rich, you know, they're drinking, they're eating, they're gorging themselves, they're getting drunk, and the poor are going hungry. And the rich don't care at all about what is happening with the poor. So the way they approach it, they're coming to the table to fill their own needs. Now, again, the application here isn't, you know, isn't quite the same because, you know, we partake of communion and it's the same little wafer, the same little cup of juice, and none of us are expecting to be filled by that. We have to still eat lunch afterwards, so it's a different kind of context in that sense. But I think the broader application of the church in general is quite remarkable. In the last 20 years, we've seen a remarkable decline in people who say they belong to a church. Uh, it was kind of stayed the same basically up to the 
year 2000, 2001, and then in the last 20 years, it's just been a remarkable decline. So that today, less than 50% of people say they belong to, ch to a church. And that's, I think, even people who would not necessarily even attend church. It's just people that say they belong to some church, whether they maybe even go on Christmas or Easter or something like that. But then on the other hand, you have 7 in 10 Americans who say they're spiritual or that they belong to some religion. So where's the kind of disconnect? I mean, in the, going back up until about 2001, it was about 70% of people who said they belonged to a church. 60, 70%, something like that. And then you see this dramatic decline in the last 20 years. I, I think that there are several reasons for this downward trajectory, and I think we kind of get a glimpse of that uh, as we look at the reasons why many people come to church. There's a study that was done, a survey in August of 2018, where the Pew Forum published a list of the top 10 reasons that regular or semi-regular church attenders uh, go to church. So the top reason was to become closer to God. Second, so their children would have a moral foundation. Third, to become a better person. Four, for comfort in times of trouble or sorrow. Five, they find the sermons valuable. Six, to be part of a faith community. Seven, to continue their faith, their family's religious traditions. Seven, they feel obligated to go. Next, to meet new people or socialize, to please their family or spouse or partner, finally. Now, you look at these reasons, and none of these reasons are bad. None of them are evil. But most of these reasons are kind of focused on one thing. That's self, pleasing self. It's I go to church so I can feel closer to God. I go to church so that my family would be moral. I go to church so that I would be comforted. I go to church so that I would be uplifted by the sermon. I go to church for me. A pastor named Colin Smith talks about four false images of the church. He says, the first image is the church is a gas station. He says, for some people today, the church is a place where you fill up your spiritual gas tank when you're running low. Get a good sermon and we'll keep you going for the week. For some, the church is a movie theater. For many people, the church is a place that offers entertainment. Go for an hour of escape, hopefully in comfortable seats. Leave your problems at the door and come out smiling, feeling better than when you went in. Next, he says, is the church is a drugstore. For other people, church is the place where you can fill the prescription that will deal with your pain. For many, the church is therapeutic. Final image is the church as a big box retailer. He says other people see the church as a place that offers the best products in a clean and safe environment for you and your family. The church offers great service at a low price, all in one stop. For many people, the church is a producer of programs for children and young people. Church has become all about me. It's all about fulfilling my needs so that I feel closer to God, so that I feel comforted. So you have all those reasons for church, and kind of, those are kind of the primary reasons many people, and, and not necessarily the people here, I think the opposite is true for most of us here, but that's the reason that many people go to church, and then you have something like COVID-19 that comes along, and people are like, huh, I, I think I could worship at home. 
I could could grow close to God at home. I think maybe I could teach my children the things of God at home. You know, maybe I don't need this community of faith. Maybe I can do it by myself. And what has happened is, you know, we think like, oh, I could watch church online. I could listen to the message online. I don't need the community of faith. I don't need other believers in my life. And what's happened, sadly, is that many people have used COVID-19 as an excuse to be disobedient. God has called us to come together. We do online church. We love online church because, you know, there's some people who are not able to come. They're sick. You know, they have uh, health impediments. They'd love to be here. They just can't. Other people, you know, maybe their circumstances prevent them from coming because they're, you know, in a different location or whatnot. So we do those for those reasons. There's, there's reasons for that. Doing online church is not the same as being with God's people. Think about it this way. So Christmas is coming up. Let's say you have a family Christmas party. You have this family Christmas party, and you could say to yourself, well, why am I going to this family Christmas party? I mean, I could celebrate Christmas by myself, couldn't I? I mean, I could just put on this Christmas movie and read the nativity story, and I could, I could worship by myself. I don't need my family to celebrate Christmas. And I don't necessarily need to see my family. I guess I could just kind of exchange presents through the mail. We could maybe do a Zoom Christmas kind of thing or something like that. I mean, I don't, I don't need to go to this party. I don't need to see my family. Now, all those things are true in a sense, but you go to the party because it's your family. You want to celebrate Christmas with your family. Now, sometimes you go to the party and the party will be kind of boring. Sometimes it will be a lot of fun. Sometimes you'll go and, and, and you'll just have a great time connecting with other people and there'll be great uh, games, the food will be great, and sometimes you'll go and food will stink, be overcooked. Conversations will get a little bit awkward when people start bringing up political stuff. The games will just be kind of weird and awkward. But you go, because it's your family. Same thing is true with the church. We come together as the body of Christ. Sometimes you'll come into worship and it's like you're just clicking on all cylinders. You just feel so close to God. You talk to the people around you, and they're encouraging you, and you just feel like you're on the top of the world. And uh, songs that are chosen are just the songs that just connect with your heart, and the message is amazing because Mike Davis is preaching, and it's just awesome. Then other times you'll come in, person on your left is complaining about one thing, person on your right is complaining about the other thing. You'll start singing, and it's like, I don't know this song. I don't like this song. I don't like the way this song has been sung. Then you get to the sermons, like, oh, this sermon's giving me a taste of what hell is going to be like. It's not so good. <laughs> but it's the family. And that's what the church is about. The church is about the family coming together to celebrate Jesus. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's about the family coming together to celebrate Jesus. It's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's about us worshiping Christ. And if our primary emphasis, of course we come to receive. But as we approach the community of faith, it's not primarily what can I get. I mean, nobody goes to a Christmas party and be like, oh, I'm just going there to see what I can get out of everybody. No. 
It's about celebrating together. It's about loving those around us. That's what the church is about. And if our focus is all about on ourselves, then it's not Jesus' party. The final way that they falter, and this kind of sums up uh, both of the things we already talked about, is in short, they didn't understand the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of what God has done, is doing, and will do in Jesus. It centers around his act of redemption in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what they're doing by their behavior is not in line with the gospel. And so you have Paul recounting what happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. Probably it was a Passover meal, and he took the bread and he broke it. He gave it to the disciples, said, this, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Took the wine, poured it out, gave it to each of his disciples, said, this is my blood that was shed for you. And yet in the church, in Corinth, what they're doing is the rich are gathering together, and they have a loaf of bread, and they're like, this is my bread. This is my wine. It's not for them over there. It's for us. And so Paul's like, that's not in line with the gospel. That's not the Lord's Supper. That's not Jesus' kind of party because we see in the supper that Jesus gave himself for all. We also see that the gospel is the ultimate unifier. Um, in our, I help with the Iwana Cubbies, and this week we were trying to emphasize the fact that all have sinned, and we had the kids stand up. We had one of them stand up. It's like, is one cubby all? No. Had the next one, is two cubbies all? No, it's three cubbies all. No, it's everyone. The Bible says we've all fallen, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet grace is available to each and every one of us. And through the gospel, we see that Christ offered his body to everyone. He offered his body for sinners, people who are broken, people who don't have it all together. And he formed this new family of different races, different socioeconomic classes, different ages, formed them into one body. And so what's happening here in the church of Corinth is they're behaving as if the things of this world matters. They be, they're behaving as if there's two families, the rich and the poor. Paul says there's not two families, there's one family. Christ has made us all one. And so when we come to the table, it's meant to unify us as the body of Christ. It's almost like what's happening is you have a family meal and the husband and wife, mother and father are eating in the dining room. One of the kids is eating in the bedroom and one is eating in the basement. That's not a family meal. That's what Paul says. It says that this meal is not in line with the gospel. And the problem is the problem of the table. The way that they're misusing the Lord's Supper, eating it in the wrong manner. But the solution is also a solution of the table. Because as we look at the table and the way that the elements are to be distributed and eaten together, it's a picture of the gospel. And so the table is both the problem and the solution to the problem. And when we're focused on the gospel, when the our communion, when the Lord's Supper points us to the gospel, we can't help but be unified. A.W. Tozer once wrote this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork or automa automatically tuned to each other? 
They are one accord by being attuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. See, the gospel is a tuning fork that lines us up with God's purpose, and we see a picture, a tangible expression of the gospel in the Lord's Supper. As we eat together, as we partake of the elements, we realize that we need Christ. We need His sacrifice. We need His love. We need His grace. And as we do that, that unifies us. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper, but they were missing the point. It wasn't Jesus' party. In uh, his book, Searching for God Knows What, Donald Miller tells of a lecture that he delivered to some students in a Christian college. And he said, I'm going to share the gospel with you, but I'm going to leave out one important point. He started off talking about the rampant sin that plagued our culture. He talked about homosexuality, abortion, drug use, song lyrics on the radio, newspaper headlines, and so on. He said that the wages of sin is death. He talked about teen pregnancy, sexually transmitted disease, gave statistics to back it up. He describes how sin separates us from God. He spoke about the beauty of morality, telling uh, stories, examples of how righteous living was better. He detailed the greatness of heaven. He spoke of repentance, how their lives could be God-honoring and God-centered. Describing what happened when he finished the lecture, he writes this. He said, I rested my case, asked the class if they could tell me what it was that I left out of this gospel presentation. Not a single hand was raised. I presented a gospel to Christian Bible college students and left out Jesus. Nobody noticed. He said to a culture that believes they go to heaven based on whether or not they're morally pure, or that they understand some theological ideas, or that they're very spiritual, Jesus is completely unnecessary. At best, he's an afterthought, a technicality by which we become morally pure, or a subject of which we know, or a founding father of our woohoo spirituality. Likewise, the church came together. They missed the most important part of the gospel, Jesus Christ. We'd be wise if we don't do the same thing. See, the Lord's Supper, it's about the family coming together to celebrate Jesus. It's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's what the church is about. Carol Barth once wrote this, Holy Communion is offered to all, as surely as the living Christ is for all. As surely as all of us are not divided in him, but belong together as brothers and sisters, all of us poor sinners, all of us rich through his mercy. It's about the church coming together to celebrate Jesus. So we're going to celebrate Jesus through the taking, partaking of communion. Before we do that, I'd like to note Paul does give a warning. Uh, in this passage, he gives a warning not to take the supper in an unworthy manner or not to or that we have to discern the body and the blood of Christ. Now, when I grew up listening to uh, messages on this, I always was taught that it's basically you just kind of have to confess your sins to God. You need to make sure that you have a clear conscience before you take the Lord's Supper. Now, that's a good thing to do. That's a, a good practice to do. I don't think that's necessarily what he's talking about here, though. In this passage, what's happening is they miss Jesus. 
They're partaking of the Lord's Supper, the so they think, but they're missing Jesus. And I think what Paul is communicating to us is, if you're going to take the Lord's Supper, you need to understand what it means. You need to understand that that body was broken for you. You need to understand that that blood was shed for you. You need to realize that we all come broken. We all come sinners. We're all in need of that body and blood that's shed for us. So if you're here and you're not a believer yet, hopefully, you know, maybe even today would be the day that you turn and accept Christ by faith. But if you're not a believer, maybe maybe don't partake of the elements for today. If you're a believer here and maybe you're not in the right frame of mind, maybe you're thinking about something happening tomorrow, maybe, maybe, maybe don't partake of the elements today. But we come here to the table to remember the sacrifice of what Christ has done for us. There's an episode of Seinfeld uh, where Elaine is at work and uh, she's really hungry and so she goes into her boss's fridge to see what she can find and she finds this beautiful piece of cake. And so she starts eating this cake and then sticks it back into the refrigerator with a couple bites taken out of it. And then she finds out that this cake is not just an ordinary cake. It's a cake that was from the wedding of Henry VIII, and it's worth $29,000. I think sometimes we can come to the Lord's Supper. We partake, but we don't realize the value. Paul says don't do that. If you don't understand what's happening, if you don't discern the body of Christ, then don't partake of the elements. It's the Lord's Supper. It's God's family coming together to celebrate Jesus. So this time we're going to celebrate Jesus together. If you'd uh, take out um, the elements. If you didn't get one, uh, anybody didn't get one that would like one? All right, cool. So this time if you'd peel back the first layer for the bread. Matthew chapter 26 says this. Then when it was evening... He reclined, Jesus, at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were very sorrowful, began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish will, with me with, will betray me. The Son of Man goes at his, as it is written of him, but woe to the man whom the Son of Man has betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Judas who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's partake together. At this time, if you take the next layer... Passes continues, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's partake together. Lord, we thank you for your love for us.
We thank you for your body and blood that were shed on the cross for us. We thank you that no matter who we are, no matter what our background is, no matter how many times we've fallen short of your glory, there's a seat at your table that your body and your blood are offered to us without cost. Lord, help us to never forget your love, never to forget your gospel. As we come together as the church each week, help our assembly to be honoring to you. Help it to be your kind of party. Help us to be informed each day by your love, by your gospel, by your grace. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for your body. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.